Welcome to DC TV Classics, your home for the history of DC on TV. I am Keith Chow, rolling solo today. I uh, have a special interview that I want to bring to you guys. We will come back soon, I promise, with uh, all new episodes of DC TV Classics with the whole crew. But until then, I wanted to share this special interview that I had with the executive producer of little films you may have heard of called Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Justice League, Lego Batman, and Teen Titans Go to the Movies. I spoke to executive producer Michael Uslin of all of those films. He is the man responsible for Batman on the big screen. Uh, we met over lunch at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, so please forgive the uh, terrible audio. It was a very busy restaurant, uh, as everywhere is very busy during Comic-Con. But he sat down with me to talk about his history with the Batman film franchise, where it's been, where it's going. Also talk a little bit about Dino Saucers for you 80s kids out there. The classic animated series is coming back as a series of comic books for Lion Forge. And uh, maybe the long-lost Dino Saucers toy line could return. Who knows? But until then, please enjoy this conversation between myself and Batman executive producer Michael Uslin, and I'll see you on the other side. So I'm sitting here at lunch with Michael Uslin. Here's a, here's a story that I don't know if you remember. It was about nine years ago. Flying to San Diego Comic Con 2009, lo and behold, this man walks towards me on the airplane sits right next to me, wearing a Batman cap, and I am one of the biggest Batman fanboys of all time. So as soon as you sit down, I say to you, you're Michael Uslan of Batman, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and here we are, ten, nearly 10 years later. Life, life is kind of funny, <laughs> it, with all of its twists and turns. How many people recognize you on Air Force? Um, very few. One of the great things about producing is being behind the camera <laughs> and except for all the DVD right. extras and the documentaries and featurettes um, I can go with my family all these great places that Mark Hamill can't so that's that that's you don't need to wear the disguise don't need to wear it not not this year but there there are many interesting times my wife and I went to a play on Broadway in New York one night we got out it was pretty late it was cold outside. We stopped in a Starbucks in New York. I go to pay. The guy says, I'm not taking your money. I said, what do you mean you're not taking my money? He goes, I know who you are. <laughs> I mean, that was a line. Did you grab by the lapels? <laughs> yeah, that was a line Michael Keaton used with the Joker in the 89 movie. And then my wife and I are walking. We had parked our car at the Port Authority, which is a sketchy place at night. We get on the elevator. A guy gets on the elevator and he's staring at me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, this is Bruce Wayne's parents thing. Uh-oh. And he goes, are you Michael Uslan? I go, I don't know. Who wants to know? <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. I'm just a big fan. I'm just a big fan. So it, it's kind of fun with that. So no one's ever asked. Well, I'm sure people have asked me, have you ever danced with the devil in the film movie? Well, do you know I answered that question? I explained what that meant. I refer everybody listening to the podcast to go find my Batman graphic novel that I wrote. It must be 10 years ago or more. It's called Batman Detective Number 27. It was hardback and trade paperback sold out. And in that story, I explained the whole background history and meaning of Did You Ever Dance with the Devil in the Pale oh, Moonlight. Okay. So we got a, can, is that book still available? You can find it on Amazon, eBay. It's out of print. But 
um, the hardback is kind of expensive, but the trade paperback they right. can pick up easily. Well, so yes, we are. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is 2018, July 2018. I mean, it was all over the internet for the last few days. The 10th anniversary of The Dark Knight, arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, live action Batman. Yeah, I with think the, it with is. With a live action qualifier, because we'll get to it in a minute. So there may be non live action movies that might surpass them. Right. Um, looking back 10 years on, what, what legacy do you think The Dark Knight... Because some of the more interesting articles that I've been reading is that The Dark Knight has uh, kind of lived up to the Harvey Dent quote, you need to die here or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I mean, it still holds up. It's a great film. But a lot of the lessons learned from The Dark Knight may not have been the right people who identify with the Joker, let's say, yeah, yeah. more than they should have. Or even like the dark, gritty tone of superhero movies in like 10 years since. Far none, Dark Knight's a great film. What do you think is the Christopher Nolan is a genius. Start with that premise. What Chris did with Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, and I have to qualify it. I never think of them as three separate movies. I think of it as one movie told in three acts. It is the most beautifully structured movie where setups are planted in Batman Begins and Dark Knight and payoffs are all neatly done in Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Character arcs evolve beautifully. It's like you could tie a bow at the end of it uh, with its structure. What I think Chris Nolan did was actually raise the bar for all comic book movies because when you walked out of one of his Batman films, you no longer had to say, oh, that was a great comic book movie. You can now say, that was a great film. And that was important. Another thing he did was he presented a comic book movie, a superhero movie, that had such thematic heft to it, that dealt with such important post-9-11 issues. And I loved how so many of the critics talked about these movies being the most important post-9-11 movies that have been made. Insofar as to what extent do you go to combat a villain that drops to the depths of villainry, to, that drops to the depths of humanity? Are you willing to sacrifice liberties to do that? Um, that was one of the things addressed. And the other thing was how far do you drop down in order to combat that? Do you drop down to the level of the villain? And in this case, the terrorist, really, the master of chaos. And if you do drop down, at what point do you no longer become a hero, but become the villain itself? It's incredible that a comic book superhero movie dealt with issues like that. And it all came to a head with one scene in The Dark Knight. And that's when you had all the people on the boat, and they had to make a moral choice. Do you press a button and blow up everyone else on the other boat in order to save yourself, or do you not? What happens when you must make a moral choice and the choice is between bad and worse? And as I've lectured around the country, really around the world since Dark Knight, in Q&A, so many people address that and they tell me in the darkness of the movie theater, they actually came to personal terms with what they believed they would do in that situation. And that's freaking incredible <laughs> that a comic book movie could impact people like that. So in my head canon, I always thought that whichever boat flicked the switch would blow themselves up. 
that the Joker would rig it so much, so, and so that you know, let's say the criminals decided to blow up the, the uh, civilians. If they flick the switch, their their boat would blow up anyway. And once again, you would have the irony of the Joker serving what is ultimately justice. Right. <laughs> That's true. You know, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past is that your long quest uh, to Batman 89 was to see a dark series Batman movie because prior to 1989, uh, at least in multimedia, at least in like the, the public perception, Batman was a campy character. Correct. It was Adam West. It was the Batusi. Um, but then The Dark Knight came about in 2008, kind of kicking off, as I said earlier, this kind of like dark and gritty take on superheroes. But, you know, we had already had dark series. I mean, Blade had come out, uh, X-Men had come out. What made the Dark Knight stand out in that kind of serious take on the superheroes? What, what was the difference? First thing you must acknowledge is that this revolutionary moment did not happen with Batman Begins and Dark Knight. I mean, it certainly didn't happen with Blade or, or any of those. Right. It happened with Batman 89. It was yeah. the dark... The natural revolution. Yeah, it was the dark and serious interpretation by Tim Burton, another genius, along with my dear friend, my, the third genius, Anton First, who was our production designer and designed Gotham City, the Batmobile, whole look at the picture, to the extent, Keith, that I maintain, and I'll challenge anybody to challenge me on it, to this very day, when you go to see any genre movie, any comic book movie, you can still see the influence of Tim Burton's vision and Anton First's design work and Danny Elfman's musical notes still influencing every one of these movies. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's kind of couching it in like as the evolution because, you know, more than 20 years later with uh, The Dark Knight and, you know, if you think about Nolan's vision and uh, Nathan Crowley's uh, production design, and Hans Zimmer's music, mm -hmm. also redefining how superhero movies, how just big blockbuster movies are made in the 10 years since, right? So you have, like, you know, I kind of put, like, Casino Royale in that kind of, the Batman begins, the Batman begins in James Bond, <laughs> you know? I do. Um, but then, like, the, but the music, that, like, blaring music and the percussion, like, whenever you hear percussion in the superhero film, it's because of Hans Zimmer. So it's like, Batman films tend to set the precedent. Always. They do. They really do. Um, one of the things that I think is the biggest danger to all of us is oversaturation in the marketplace now. Superhero fatigue, they call it. <laughs> when, when, not every, but when a lot of superhero movies start to feel similar and familiar, that's a bad thing. Right. I love when Marvel or Warner is bold and tries something new and different, whether it's Guardians of the Galaxy or Deadpool 1. Um, Ant-Man's a great example. I so wanted to hate that movie. I was sitting and having lunch with Stan Lee one day before Ant-Man, the first Ant-Man movie was announced. And he said, you know, Michael, I don't get it. He goes, I've done really well creating superheroes, co-creating superheroes, and the one superhero I could never make a success of was Ant-Man. He said, Jack and I introduced a story, The Man in the Anthill. Yeah. Got a lot of letters, didn't sell particularly well, 
but I thought on the basis of letters, let's try them again. This time we gave him a uniform and a name, Ant-Man. It didn't sell. You put a G in the front. <laughs> well, close. He said, so then we made it Ant-Man and the Wasp. Right. Didn't sell. So I thought, well, maybe fans don't like it when a hero shrinks. I'll make him grow. Turned him into Giant Man. Okay. Didn't sell. I tried the new Giant Man. Didn't sell. I turned him into Goliath. It didn't sell. Then I thought, maybe I have the wrong insect. I made him Yellow Jacket. <laughs> didn't sell. Then after a few years, I thought, maybe it's a matter of timing. We brought back the all-new Astonishing Ant-Man. Didn't sell. So now Disney's going to spend $150 million to make a movie. Maybe they'll figure it out. And of course, and they figured it out. Figured it it out. Paul Rudd. That was the difference. <laughs> it really was. I really had a fun time with Ant-Man and the Wasp. Well, and I think one of the things that's, that is, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about the competition, but like one of the things that I think Marvel sets Marvel apart, their cinematic universe apart, is that, as you said, they, they play around with genre. You know, Winter Soldier was a 70s political film. Uh, Ant-Man was a heist movie. Uh, Doctor Strange, the, yeah. Doctor Strange is like, uh, like a wizard movie. Thor's are fantasy films, right? And Ragnarok was a comedy. Right. <laughs> you know, like a, a crazy comedy. So, uh, one of the things that I think, what I'm excited about, I just came out of Paul H, so I'm so on a high from like Paul H, but I kind of feel like the DC movies are, are moving in that direction. But, you know, I want to I want to go back to like the legacy of the Dark Knight. Yeah. With the the kind of seriousness, and I, I alluded to this earlier, the kind of lessons that a lot of studios took from the Dark Knight. Said, well, let's just turn our and the same thing can be said about Iron Man and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A lot of the studios are let's create our own cinematic universe. That that hasn't worked. Either. The guys over at Marvel have figured out the secret sauce that the connected universe work. But when I think of the Dark Knight, and I think of like. I think the to me I think what your secret sauce was with that film was finding a visionary director and an amazing cast and just putting all the building blocks together. You need more than simply a visionary director. You need a director with passion for the character, who knows the character, understands the character, has that vision for it, and that you believe has the ability to execute that vision. That's, I think, all the right. elements that it takes. And I think because I, part of, you know, you and I are both fanboys, we talked about yeah. how we came, you know, and I think the other difference now is that you see a lot of uh, directors and filmmakers are fans of these properties, and that's why maybe you're seeing more devotion to the source material, you're seeing more, like, people are not afraid of, like, superhero costumes, and, like, superpowers, and that, that's probably because, you know, <laughs> There's been a generational shift. I think it's important here to give you the context of the times and take it back to 1979 when I first bought the rights to Batman to make into a movie, a dark and serious movie. And I was turned down by every single studio in Hollywood. The people who were running the studios at that point, same for the agents, were of a prior generation. They were a generation that were exposed to Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent. They all looked down their nose at comic books. They had no respect for comic book creators, comic book characters. Didn't exist. They thought at best they were cheap entertainment for little kids and that Superman was the only property that had the ability to be a blockbuster that could appeal all over the world to audiences over the age of 12. Um, 
that was really tough. I like to tell about one of, probably my favorite rejection um, was when I pitched to Columbia Pictures. There was a guy there, he'd been there for a long time, uh, silver hair guy. I pitched my heart out about doing a dark and serious Batman. And when I'm done pitching, he shook his head, gave me a tisk tisk, said, Michael, you're crazy. Batman will never be a successful movie because our movie, Annie, wasn't successful. Because, as he said, they're both out of the funny pages. So he equated Batman with a little red-headed girl who sings tomorrow. <laughs> you know, the Batman musical, you need a, that needs to be the next thing. I think we need a Batman musical. Please. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of children's entertainment, everyone knows you for Batman, of course. Some people may not know, before the, the Batman movies, you, uh, cre you co-created a little animated series called Dino Saucers. And you're bringing it back for life. Can you talk about that? I'm very excited about it. I've loved working in animation over the years. Um, I actually won the Emmy Award for Best Animated Series. Um, we brought Carmen Sandiego to television, which had an incredible five-year run. Um, a lot of people remember it today very fondly. A lot of people learned a lot from it. Are you involved? No, I'm not. Um, so that's always been a fun field to play in. So back in the 80s when my son was little and my daughter was a newborn, I wanted to create an animated show that would be based on stories I would tell him before he went to sleep. Now my son David was totally into dinosaurs and outer space. I realized so was I when I was a kid, so was every boy I ever knew. And I said, there's got to be some way to combine dinosaurs and outer space. Yeah. Dinosaurs and outer space. Dinos saucers. It's <laughs> easy as that. And I, this it's very Stan Lee of you. <laughs> well, and it happened while I was shaving one morning. So I'm going, okay, I got it. I just don't know what it is. So then I created the backstory from there, which very simply is Earth has a twin planet, Reptilon, exactly 93 million miles from the sun. We rotate at the same pace, so we've never seen them, they've never seen us. 66 million years ago, an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs on Earth, never happened on Reptile. So the dinosaurs continued to evolve. And today, being 65 million years ahead of us, they've conquered space travel, they're very humanoid in their appearance. There's the bad guys, the tyrannos, the good guys, the dinosaurs and they're after the natural resources of Earth. Because due to climate change and global warming, they're killing this, our this own planet. 40, 30, 40 years ago, you were already talking about climate change. You're ahead of your time. Um, yeah, that's a dangerous place to be a lot of times. <laughs> that's exactly the reason why, from the time we bought the rights to Batman, it took us 10 years before we could get our first Batman movie made. 10 years of rejection. 10 years of everybody telling you you suck, <laughs> that your idea stinks, your work is bad. Billions of dollars later. <laughs> yeah, billions and billions. With the, the <laughs> well, one of the things about dinosaurs, so I'm a kid from the 80s, uh, and everyone knows two things go hand in hand in the 80s, are the cartoons and the toys that go with them. You think of Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe, all of them. 
Um, and for all of us 80s toy collectors, there's one toy line that is like the holy grail. Yep. It's the, it's the, the lost toy line to history. Because a lot of people remember Dinosaurs was longer. It only lasted for like one season. Five, five years we ran. Oh, five years. Five years, 65 episodes. 65, well, yeah, 65, 65 is like one season for a lot of those 80s shows. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, they kept repeating them over and over right, again. Right. But the toy line never saw the light of day. Correct. I own the prototypes. I own one set of the prototypes. Will we see them now that Line Forge is printing uh, Dinosaurs? It's a great question. Um, the line was originally supposed to come out through Hasbro, and I just was told the actual story behind why it didn't come out at the last minute, what happened. It's a book. It's a documentary. It's a series of New York Times and Washington Post <laughs> articles. It's filled with intrigue, filled with mystery and mayhem. Um, but yeah, if, if you go online, and there's about two dozen um, websites devoted to dinosaurs, Man, those things are going for oh, lots I, oh, and lots and lots of money. And that's the thing, like, you know, when you think of, like, you think of the 80s, any 80s property had to have the toy, and then there's no better toy idea than dinosaurs in outer space. There you go. So, what I'm so excited about, we're working with Lion Forge, and we're bringing back dinosaurs, and I've aged it up. Okay. And I've reflected 35 years of paleontology advances and what we've learned about dinosaurs. So they got feathers. They have feathers now. <laughs> they're brightly colored. Uh, their tails don't drag. There are so many things we've learned, and most of those discoveries are coming out of China. So also, is that going to be an aspect of the... There's going to be new secret scouts from all over the world, kind of like a, a Greenpeace type of organization. So there's, um, there's a new character from China. Um, the action involves a massive invasion that takes place both in Washington, D.C. and Beijing. And um, it's very, very exciting. And it, it all starts when the Tyrannos out in outer space capture the Voyager that was sent out into uh, outer space beyond our solar system with the voice recording of Jimmy Carter and the golden record that explains everything about mankind, everything about Earth, and was like giving the the Tyrannos a blueprint for invasion. <laughs> wow. They, so they realize there are billions of pieces of meat on the planet Earth. <laughs> That's when does that come out? August 8th. Uh, it'll be out from Lion Ford's first issue. We're doing a five issue series, then the graphic novel compiling it all. And then I, um, it's a little too early to tell, but I think the second story arc. I'm hoping will be done by my the, the woman who was my story editor and wrote many of the original dinosaurs, who is now a New York Times best-selling fantasy and science fiction author, Diane Duane. And I hope I'm hoping we can corral Diane to come back and do the next story arc. And 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 if it if it hits, we need to get those dinosaur action figures back on the market. Not only that, if it hits, I am working real hard. Uh, to set it up as a live-action feature film. Oh, wow. Kind of like G.I. Joe versus Jurassic Park. Right, except more scientifically accurate dinosaurs. More scientifically <laughs> accurate, much more scientifically <laughs> accurate, but with the Transformers tone to it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. Well, like I said, you know, 80s nostalgia, man. 
and, and those of us who remember Dino Saucers are definitely very excited. Dino Saucers, Boy George, <laughs> all kind of goes together. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking some time to, to reminisce about Batman and uh, Dino Saucers. I appreciate it, Keith. Yeah, San Diego is a very busy, busy time. So. It, it's crazy time. This is my 54th annual Comic-Con. <laughs> I was at the first one ever held on the planet Earth right. in New York City. And um, 200 of us were at the first Comic-Con, so it's changed a little like bit. 200 of us in this restaurant, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's great, but all I do is I'd like to just remind everybody out there, if you feel like celebrating, we are in the 25th anniversary of Mask of the Phantasm, yes. which many, many consider to be the greatest Batman story ever told. That's why I qualified the Dark Knight earlier. <laughs> and it gave us Mark Hamill as the voice of the Joker, and I think if anyone decides to build a Mount Rushmore to the Joker someday, oh, yeah. it'll be Heath Ledger, Jack Nicholson, and Mark Hamill yeah, up there sure. on it. Uh, it's, it's the 10th anniversary of the Dark Knight. Hard to believe. Hard next, to believe. Next year. Um, kids in college who have never seen it on a big screen. I showed it to my daughter for the first time the other day. She loved it. That's, see, that's great. That's what we need more of. Yeah. Next year is the 30th anniversary of the revolutionary movie that <laughs> kicked this all off, yeah. changed Hollywood, changed the comic book industry, and impacted the world culture, and that was Batman 1989. Uh, and it's also going to be the 80th anniversary of Batman next year. So we all have a lot to celebrate. Yeah. And let's not forget all the comic book people who for 80 years brought us back every week to the comic book stores, to the candy stores, yeah. to the drug stores. And he's doing it right now. Shout out to Tom King, one of my favorite Batman writers. Doing it every week. And Scott Snyder. And Scott, and Scott, the, yeah, Scott Snyder. Great, great talent, the, still working it. Yeah. So yeah, Batman, one thing you and I have in common is a mutual love for Batman. So Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us here, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your convention. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you so much. Love you.